Coming to you from the Outer Mission, this is Monkey Block, a storytelling podcast focused on San Francisco's golden past, 1849 through 1906. I'm your host, Girlina. The stories are closely based on newspapers of the time, historical books, and journals. Disclaimer, I do my best to research and share the real stories, extracting legends or calling them out. Now, let's go back in time. Sometimes things aren't what they seem. We've all taken data points out of context and made connections which fit the narrative we already wanted to believe. Sometimes these situations become funny stories in retrospect, and sometimes they remain situations you'd rather forget. But if you're lucky, you get a spin doctor to make the mistake heroic. I left off in 1846 and wanted to dive into the annexation of California. But as I did my research, I came across an event that would play into the eventual annexation. What I describe today is an interesting tale in California and United States history by setting the future landscape for how the annexation would eventually happen. The actual touch points to Yerba Buena, San Francisco, are peripheral, but meaningful. We backtrack to 1842, but trust me, this is a good story and precursor to the actual annexation. Are you ready? Here we go. It's 1842, and the tensions are high between the United States and Mexico regarding California. In a nutshell, Mexico is starting to require passports for Americans living in California. In addition to the United States, England and France are also interested in California. On October 18, 1842, Commodore Thomas App Catsby Jones Captain Armstrong and Captain Stribling are a few hours outside of Monterey Bay on the warship called United States and the sloop of war called Cyan. Commodore Jones informed his command. We are now approaching the shore of California, the territory of Mexico, the enemy of our country, whose flag it is our duty to strike and hoist in its place our own. It is not only our duty to take, but we must keep it afterwards at all hazards. This may or may not be an easy task. We are prepared for all the worst. In just a few hours, we shall be in possession of Monterey. So Commodore Jones is arriving with a warship. But why? Well, Commodore Jones understood Mexico was about to sell California to England for $7 million as part of settling a debt for 1.5 million pounds. Now that 1.5 million pounds debt back in 1842, I looked this up, is worth $68 million today. Still seems like a bargain. Additionally, Commodore Jones understood Mexico's president, Antonio Lopez Santa Ana, had written a letter to Secretary of State Daniel Webster on June 4th, 1842, stating Mexico made a declaration of war against the United States. Jones feared the English would arrive to Monterey before him to purchase California. 
But upon arrival, he only saw one Mexican ship in the Monterey Bay. And actually, the seas were very empty as he traveled to California. But he was correct in his timing and arrived before the British had arrived. That's a data point. The next day, October 19th, Commodore Jones, Captain Armstrong, and Captain Stribling arrive in Monterey Bay and quickly seize the Mexican ship, Joven Guapuscana, and captured a very surprised Englishman, Captain Joseph F. Snook. Commodore Jones proclaimed they were under orders to seize every California port from Yerba Buena to San Diego before Mexico could enact their plan to sell California to England to pay off the debts. Captain Snook was caught off guard and said he had no knowledge of a diplomatic situation, but Jones did not believe an Englishman's attempt at ignorance as he manned a Mexican ship. Snook asked to be released, but instead was taking capture on the Cyan. Okay, so the proverbial shots are fired. Commodore Jones came prepared for his mission and arrived with the articles of capitulation written in advance with copies in English and in Spanish. Jones states he is about to place his name in the history records of American expansionist history by presenting Monterey and the California governor with his proclamation. The articles of capitulation had been written with blank spaces as you would normally see on a legal contract to be executed later in time and in other cities. He came prepared. At about four o'clock in the afternoon, Jones sends Captain Armstrong to shore to deliver the proclamation, expecting Governor Juan Bautista Alvarado to comply with his demand by 11 o'clock the next morning. From the Commodore Thomas App Catsby Jones, Commander-in-Chief of the United States Naval Forces on the Pacific to His Excellency, the Governor and Military and Civil Commander of the Department of Monterey de California from the flagship United States, Monterey Bay, October 19, 1842. Sir, in the name of the United States of America, with the earnest desire to avoid the sacrifice of human life and the horrors of war, which must be the immediate consequence of your non-compliance with the summons, I call on you to surrender to the arms of the United States the form, military posts, and stations under your command, together with all the troops, arms, and munitions of war of every description subject to your jurisdiction and control. To avoid unnecessary delay, I have hereunto annexed articles of capitulation and fully empowered the bearer, Captain James Armstrong, to unite with your excellency or such persons as your excellency may name to sign and execute the same on the part of our respective governments. Thomas App C. Jones. Articles of capitulation entered into this blank day of blank 1842 between blank on the part of Mexico and blank on behalf of the United States of America. I'll just read one of the six articles of capitulation to be signed. Article 1. The garrison of blank shall march out on blank at blank o'clock with music and colors flying and shall 
ground arms and presence of the American forces, which will immediately enter the fort, whereupon the flag of Mexico will be lowered by a Mexican officer and that of the United States instantly hoisted in its place. For the sake of time, I'll quickly review the recent backstory. Um, Alvarado was recently voted out as governor. He had lost the election to Manuel Mitchell Torena. So the new governor was now en route to Monterey and remained en route as all of this was happening. Done. In that moment, Monterey is or isn't without a physical governor on site when Jones arrives. I've read conflicting reports, but more on that in a moment. Thomas Larkin, a United States citizen, successful Monterey merchant and American counsel in California, met with Captain Armstrong, Armstrong's secretary and two Monterey officers. Larkin is asked to be the interpreter and saw Armstrong and company to the current acting governor's house to deliver Commodore Jones's articles of capitulation on behalf of the United States. In one account, which I'm choosing to believe, after losing the election, Alvarado left Monterey to his Aliso Rancho near Salinas, 19 miles away from Monterey, and wasn't actually present to receive the letter as Jones had expected. Data point. Later that day, being four hours away by horse, Alvarado receives the news and the letter and returns to Monterey to handle the situation. Larkin plays a unique role. His successful merchant store relies on his friendly business relationships with the Californios. As a United States citizen living in Mexico's California and holding a government position as an American consul, he walks a delicate line in this situation. Larkin says in a letter to his friend Atherton that on this day, during the first hour of being in the governor's house while all this was happening, he was very uncomfortable. That night, Alvarado sent Jones this response. From J.B. Alvarado to Commodore Jones, Monterey, October 19th, 1842, 10 o'clock p.m. Sir, on the delivery of the letter requiring the surrender of this department by the officer you had commissioned for that purpose this evening, I had the honor to inform him that I was not invested with the offices of governor and commandant general as supposed by you from the address of that note, and it is in consequence unnecessary for me to explain to you that I am not competent to make a capitulation in the name of the Mexican nation, as my authority, being at present confined to the limits of the civil branch, cannot in any way extend to the military. Confirmably, with these views, which I conceive will be satisfactory to you, sir, I have conferred with the military commandant, and the result has been that a commission is sent to you composed of Captain Don Pedro Navarrez on part of the military commandancy and Don Jose Abrego representing the civil authority. Juan B. Alvarado. So with the incoming governor en route to Monterey and Alvarado voted out, Alvarado was not going to deal with this headache, I mean, situation. Alvarado instead hands it over to Monterey's military commander, Don Mariano Silva, with the aid of Navarrez and Abrego. Captain Pedro Navarrez and Jose Abrego, with Thomas Larkin acting as the interpreter, go on board Jones's ship. Despite their questionable authority, they agree to sign the Articles of Capitulation and remove the Mexican flag the next day. 
The two Californios leave the ship, and Jones asks Larkin to stay behind to speak privately. Now alone, Larkin takes this moment to ask Jones, um, who exactly has declared war, Mexico or the United States? Larkin informs Jones that as recently as a month and a half ago, the Mexican newspapers said nothing about war. If Larkin was going to make that kind of claim, Jones wanted proof. But Larkin did not provide proof, which Jones immediately read as an act of reconnaissance. For Larkin to make such a claim and have no proof was suspicious. As Jones saw it, Larkin, despite being an American counsel in California, had clearly taken sides with Mexico. Data point. As Jones waited for the morning, his ship of war and sloop of war fly flags of truce, but they keep their cannons aimed at Monterey, just in case. The next day, October 20th, at 10 o'clock in the morning, Commodore Jones sends Captain Armstrong to shore, along with the strict orders for the 150 heavily armed soldiers. No man is to enter a house without an officer, nor touch a female, however low in life she might be. Um, okay. Nor to rob however small the article, and to do nothing that you would be ashamed of before God and your country. Once ashore, per Article 1, they march to the Presidio with the band playing Yankee Doodle and the Star-Spangled Banner, which is how you knew it was serious when a drummer, a trumpeter, and a flutist are playing your national songs. That's fighting music. The Americans ceremoniously take down the Mexican flag and raise the stars and stripes for the first government official time in California, and the Articles of Capitulation are signed. All of this without resistance. The word of the takeover quickly spread amongst the Monterey residents. An American warship appears, seizes the Mexican ship anchored in the bay, tells you that your country has declared war with the United States and was planning to sell California to England? But today your country has conceded California to the United States? Everyone's head was spinning. A good portion of the residents didn't stick around to witness the American flag replace the Mexican flag or listen to the talented musicians playing American songs, or watch the 26-gun salute. They left with whatever they could as quickly as they could. Larkin, in a letter, mentions one family who left the doors and windows open during the hurry that they were in to leave. So Armstrong, now with the signed terms of surrender, reports back to Jones on the warship. All of today was accomplished without guns fired, injuries, or resistance. Jones said, This was a conquest conducted in a most orderly manner. On October 21st, Jones finally goes to shore. He's dressed in full military regalia. He wants to inspect the town now that California has been claimed by the United States. He wants to see the stars and stripes flying over Monterey. Jones's secretary, La Larentri approached Jones. He tells Jones they need to speak. Uh, something was wrong. Larentri had found the Mexican newspapers Larkin was referencing, as well as other dispatches. 
They take the papers to Larkin's store and they ask Larkin to translate the papers. Just as Larkin had stated, the newspapers, as recently as August 22nd, make no mention of war. And there's an official letter from Mexico stating that the rumor of selling California to Great Britain was just that, a rumor. Wait, what? But all the data points, recall them all. British ships weren't present to take over California, as Jones was expecting. When Jones arrived, Mexico was left without a governor at the military headquarters, which is not what you would expect if war was declared. The Californios were not prepared for or have knowledge of the war. And then there's Larkin's private conversation with Jones. Same data points now being interpreted very differently. Commodore Jones realized in that moment that he was mistaken. Mexico had not declared war on the United States, and Mexico was not planning to sell California to England. Oh, no. (laughs) Jones announces, In my opinion, the motive and only justifiable grounds for demanding a surrender of this territory has been removed, or at least rendered so doubtful as to make it my duty to restore things as I found them with the least possible delay. Well, he did arrive before the English ships came to purchase California. (laughs) Then again, the English were never going to arrive for that reason. Going back a few months, June 1842, the Mexican newspaper El Cosmopolito had printed parts of a letter between the Mexican government and Wadey Thompson, which, taken out of context, would lead you to believe Mexico had declared war on the United States. Also, a Boston newspaper reprinted a loosely written article from the New Orleans Advertiser, which incorrectly said, According to authentic information, Mexico has ceded the Californias to Great Britain for $7 million. At the time, Jones concluded these reports should be accepted on face value and acted on them. And here we are. Jones had manipulated the incoming data points to match what he already believed. Dear listener, by this point, the United States flag had been flying over Monterey for over 24 hours. What does a gentleman do in this situation? I mean, the idea to whistle and walk back to the ship like nothing happened isn't an option. The obvious first step was to remove the stars and stripes and replace it with the Mexican flag and return any seized property. That's a good start. It is a good thing Jones had extra copies of the proclamation with empty lines. Why? Because now he had to fill out another one, but this time surrendering California back to Mexico. What a circus. Larkin and Jones had to do more than replace the flag to smooth over this awkward mistake. So what do they do? The two men quickly organize banquets with music and dancing to diffuse the misunderstanding. Might as well. The warship had a talented band, which was playing the day before. And Californios love a good fiesta and fandango. For California tradition, this fiesta went on for three days. And I'm not joking about the ship's band performing at this let's make up and be friends party. 
Imagine what the locals must be thinking after two days of complete tomfoolery and now a huge party is being thrown. I picture dumbfounded Californios holding a glass of brandy while watching a fiesta take place. Who was the first person to serve themselves at this grand event? I mean, who was the guest of honor here? Commodore Jones? Certainly not. According to Larkin, he reported that some locals felt this entire mistake must have been planned because this big of a mistake is too huge to be an accident. But for what reason and for what gain, no one knew. I think it shows conspiracy theories have been around for a while. The aftermath of it all, as in after the fiesta, Jones was extremely apologetic in the most gentlemanly way possible and sent letters to several people admitting his mistake and asking for forgiveness. Oh, I bet he did. Thomas Larkin walked away unsure of how Californios would treat Americans living in their country. Would this previously friendly relationship be affected by the situation? He worried about his business relationships with the Californios, given his role in this. Now, recall, Commodore Jones wanted to place his name in American expansionist history. Oh, he did. This war that wasn't ended up having real consequences. If tensions between Mexico and the United States were present before, it didn't improve after this. In addition, this snafu was extremely embarrassing for Jones in the United States, but Jones had prematurely shown the United States' hand. The United States was hoping for a peaceful negotiation. Way to go, Jones. How could a peaceful negotiation for a harmonious sale of California province happened now. This snafu would go on to delay the United States' eventual acquisition of California for another four years and destroyed the original plan of a negotiation for a purchase and peaceful takeover of California. The foreign affairs concluded, after their investigation, that the Monterey takeover was entirely of Jones's doing and was not a part of any instruction he was given from the United States. I've said this in other episodes that time has a way of reshaping historical events. So how do you imagine our dear Jones gets remembered in American history? Without a doubt, Jones proved himself to be a true patriot when he faced the greatest risk an American officer can be party to all without authority or intelligence of any merit and with only his devout patriotism and astuteness to guide him. Hmm. Sometimes things aren't what they seem. We've all taken data points out of context and made connections which fit the narrative we already wanted to believe. Sometimes these situations become funny stories in retrospect, and sometimes they remain situations you'd rather forget. But if you're lucky, you get a spin doctor to make the mistake heroic. Jones received all three of these on a silver platter. Go on with your historic self, Thomas App Catsby Jones, you clever and devout patriot you. The sources for today's episode are Jean A. Smith's The War That Wasn't, Thomas App Catsby Jones's Seizure of Monterey, Antonio M. Osio, The History of Alta California, A Memoir of Mexican California, the Affairs at Monterey, October 20th and 21st, 1842, as reported by Thomas Larkin. Lisbeth Hass, 
War in California, 1846-1848, Luann Garrett, The Commodore's Decision, Robert Glass Cleland, The Early Sentiment for the Annexation of California. You can read today's transcript and locate the cited sources at monkeyblocksf.buzzsprout.com. You can visit MonkeyBlock at facebook.com forward slash monkeyblocksf or twitter.com forward slash monkeyblocksf or email me directly at monkeyblocksf at gmail.com. Thank you for listening. This is MonkeyBlock, retelling forgotten stories from San Francisco's golden past. <laughs>